0: Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Jonathan Foley, executive director of Project Drawdown, Project Drawdown is a world-class research organization that reviews, analyzes, and identifies the most viable global climate solutions and shares these findings with the world. Their book, Drawdown, has sold hundreds of thousands of copies and describes the 100 most substantive solutions to global warming and for each one describes its history, its carbon impact, the relative cost and savings, path to adoption, and how it works. We cover a lot in this episode, including what the organization has achieved with Drawdown 1.0, what they're aiming to achieve with Drawdown 2.0, the overall mission of the organization, their success to date, what's coming next, some of the hurdles, both internal and external, that are impeding its progress, some of the changes that could be made that could help accelerate that progress, and most importantly, Not only how the work of Project Drawdown ties into the overall climate fight, but also what other levers can be impactful as well. And coming from someone with as much experience as Dr. Foley, he's got some great ideas in what each person can do to help the cause. Jonathan Foley, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for
1: having me here. Appreciate it.
0: All right. And we're trying something a little bit different sitting here at an outdoor cafe in Coal Valley. And at least for now, it's quiet, so we'll see if that holds up.
1: Yeah, we're sitting in a garden. Uh, you might hear some uh, mass transit in the background. A local kind of uh, light rail goes by, a good drawdown solution for climate change. You might hear in the distance once in a while, and we should be good to go. But surrounded
0: by plant life like this, it's very on-brand.
1: Yeah, we're good. We're, yeah, it is. <laughs> we aim to please.
0: <laughs> Maybe just take it from the top. What's Project Drawdown?
1: So Project Drawdown, I'm very lucky to be acting as the, uh, serving as the executive director of this organization that's been around a few years. I joined a little less than a year ago. And it's devoted to finding solutions to climate change and sharing them with the world as quickly as we can. Drawdown is referring to a moment in time in the future when greenhouse gas levels stop going up and they start going back down again, and we restore the atmosphere back to safety, back to what it naturally should be. We don't know when that's gonna happen, but we're trying to bring that moment here sooner and safer and more equitably than, than it is right now. So uh, Drawdown, again, is a time in the future where we reverse the gases building up in the atmosphere that lead to global warming and climate change, and we start to reverse it. And our mission is to get the world to Drawdown as quickly, safely, and equitably as possible. And so we're about a half-and-half kind of science organization and communication organization. We systematically review and analyze the solutions to climate change from an arm's-length, third-party point of view. We're non-commercial. We don't invest in any of these technologies. We're nonpartisan. We're a nonprofit. And we try to review them from that kind of good housekeeping, seal of approval kind of distance and uh, share that with the world. But we also are communicators who've tried to learn how to communicate this information in a way that can be heard and used and absorbed by real change agents in the world to affect uh, solutions getting out there. And it's been a good ride so far.
0: And when did the organization start? And what's the origin story?
1: Well, I wasn't here for the origin story. You'd have to ask others, but a number of people, including um, people know about uh, probably Paul Hawken, who's one of the co-founders, but along with uh, Amanda Ravenhill and Chad Frischman and a number of people were there at the beginning conceiving this idea of like, you know, hey, what if we looked at all the solutions proposed to climate change and evaluated them and maybe even rank them first? uh, Are they enough? Would we know if we have enough solutions to climate change? And if so, uh, which ones do we start with? Which ones have the biggest bang for the buck, so to speak? So the idea started a couple of years ago, probably in 2015, I think, is starting the genesis of the idea. And about two years of active research and review was happening. And then a book came out in uh, 2017, about a year and a half ago. And here we are in 2019, about to embark on the second chapter of Drydown, going big and uh, trying to make an even bigger difference than we did. But the big uh, thing people might know for Drawdown for already is a book that came out in 2017 simply called Drawdown, which became a New York Times bestseller. It's one of the bestselling climate books in years, and it's now appearing in, I think, over a dozen languages and still selling like hotcakes all over the world.
0: Well, I hear about it all the time from people, especially who are concerned and trying to figure out what to do and don't necessarily know where to start, and me included on that list. But for those people, and for me, it's been an invaluable resource. So thank you.
1: Again, I wasn't there for that part of it. I'm going to be here for the second part. So thank me later. But we should thank the team, uh, especially all the students and postdocs and research fellows we had. Uh, we've had like about 100 people involved with this project off and on over the last couple of years, contributing their time and effort to make this really a community project. And I'm really proud of that. So drawdowns really a chorus of voices, not just one. And I think it represents a good perspective on what do we know about the solutions to climate change? The good news is there are many solutions. We wrote about 100 of them in the first book, and uh, that there are enough. Even with today's technology, we have enough solutions to stop climate change in its tracks in the next few decades with what we have today. And it's only getting better. As we invent new technologies, we're getting better and cheaper and faster at this all the time. So I think that's the good news, that climate change is a big, scary, serious problem But the tools to combat it do exist, and they're big enough tools to do the job. And that's really the bulk of the drawdown message from the first chapter of our existence was, yes, we can solve climate change, and there are numerous tools with which to do it.
0: So when did you know that this was the work that you were going to do, and how did you arrive at that conclusion?
1: Uh, It's kind of funny. I just realized about a week ago, it was 30 years ago to the week last week that I decided to dedicate my life to climate change. So three decades have been on this kind of stuff in one form or another. I was a student. At the time, at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and I wanted to be an astronomer. I wanted to go work on other planets. So I was fascinated by Mars and Jupiter and Venus and all the rest, and always wanted to be uh, an astronomer, maybe even an astronaut. If we ever got to land on another planet, I wanted to be one of the people who could. But I always had an interest in the environment, and one day kind of realizing, wait a minute, those other planets can wait. This one can't. And so my training was originally like in physics, and I switched uh, for my doctoral work. I majored in uh, atmospheric science and oceanography, essentially, and started building computer models that helped understand the changing climate. Uh, those had already been around for a while, but I was part of a team that was adding biology and chemistry to those models. So we had a kind of a living, cycling planet—not just the winds and the ocean currents and the clouds. But even like plants and, and microbes kind of exchanging chemicals with the atmosphere like carbon and water and other things. So that was really pretty interesting. I spent the first um then I became a professor in um, 93 and uh, spent about 20 years in the academic world running big research labs and centers and institutes focusing on global environmental systems like climate change. But also worked on issues like um, deforestation around the world um, in the tropics, spent a lot of time on that looked a lot at land use practices around the world and how they affect climate, and not just burning energy, but burning trees matters too, it turns out. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about the world's food system and how it interacts with the global environment. But then about six years ago, five or six years ago, I guess now, I was getting more interested in not just doing science, but how do we communicate it with the world and how do we share it so that it matters so it just doesn't end up stuck in the ivory tower somewhere. And so I came to San Francisco and became the CEO of the California Academy of Sciences, which is a really big science museum that was thinking about devoting itself to sustainability issues, including climate change. And I spent four years as the uh, CEO of the museum, uh, learning a lot along the way about science communication, engaging the broader public, and really enjoyed all that. Then about a year ago, uh, left uh, the museum world, wanting to get back more into hands-on science and science communication work, and... Last, uh, well, the end of last fall, a little less than a year ago, I was asked to take over a Project Drawdown from its founder. Uh, he asked me to succeed him and take the organization into the next phase. So here we are.
0: So when you think back about those 30 years and you have that epiphany that other planets can wait, how are you feeling about the problem then and how are you feeling about the problem now and what's been the biggest change over that time?
1: If you work in this business, and a lot of people are writing about this now, and I'm so glad that more voices are coming to this stage from um, from different points of view, different experiences, different disciplines. It's great that now we have like psychiatrists and psychologists talking about how do people deal with almost climate grief and things like this. We talk about that now. But um, I think if you work on this kind of field, it, it, there's a tension between awe and inspiration, Every day of like how magnificent this planet is and how beautiful and amazing its systems of energy and water and material are. But if you just think for a second about how this planet works, it should shock you into absolute reverence and awe. And it's the most beautifully magnificent machine in the universe is our biosphere. Nothing like it. And you meet magnificent people along the way too. Brilliant scientists and communicators and entrepreneurs and passionate regular folks who just blow you away with their insight and their passion and dedication to these issues. So I've been very lucky in some ways to learn a little bit about this magnificent planet and meet some really amazing, brilliant people who've inspired me over the years. That's the good news. The bad news is you work in a field where there's a lot of bad news every day about things that we're starting to lose, whether it's coral reefs, or tropical forest or you know stable weather patterns we've been used to for thousands of years are starting to unravel now just as people have been predicting for decades and to not only uh, see it happen but to know that people have been actively trying to subvert your efforts for decades to actively attack the science that your community is doing attacking your friends trying to make their lives miserable People like Michael Mann, Catherine Hayhoe, even much more prominent climate scientists are really out on the front lines. They um, are routinely, almost on a daily basis, uh, have their lives threatened in a serious way and not just made up on Twitter, but like real stuff that they have to be very careful about. That's pretty scary stuff for just a scientist to be dealing with. We didn't sign up for that when we went to grad school. We didn't think that you'd have to worry about your safety in some of these uh, fields, but some people do. And also to be uh, told that you're a liar and that you're a fraud by your politicians. Like we have a president today who really believes that people like me and our friends are doing this for money somehow or to hoodwink the world or something. Um, When in fact people are trying really hard to save it. And I think all of us would have done a lot better if we went into tech or something, <laughs> or finance. If you're thinking about you know, going into science is not exactly a lucrative living for people who've spent a lot of years studying math.
0: That's one of the challenges with getting people from tech to move in this direction. It's harder work and it's less fun and it's less lucrative.
1: Yep, uh, I'm gonna drop a few zeros from your salary right away. So that's kind of depressing. So on one hand, okay. you see you know, the erosion of our planet and while you're watching that, You're being attacked by the proxies of very powerful industries. Uh, You know, it's not the politicians. They're just puppets, the people who are really doing this stuff. Well, let's let's just say it. It's like the biggest industry in human history is the petroleum industry. They have a very active interest in kind of slowing down this conversation, making it seem like, well, the science isn't totally in yet. Let's talk about it some more. There's a whole book written about this called The Merchants of Doubt.
0: I just watched the movie on the plane on the way here.
1: Yeah. Well, you should interview um, the woman who wrote the book. called uh, Her name is Naomi Uzraki. She's now at Harvard.
0: I'm in Boston, too.
1: Yeah. Well, you should talk to her. She's a magnificent thinker and uh, thinks a lot about this interface of science, policy, and power. So it's kind of weird. Uh, and folks who were trained in just kind of to be a scientist, I mean, we're we're mostly kind of nerdy introverts who just want to be left alone to look at our data. That's, you know, not many of us signed up for being under public scrutiny or debating politicians and people with power and money. And, you know, that's not what a lot of us signed up for. So it's kind of a strange place to find yourself. I've had relatively little of that compared to some people enough to be a little scary sometimes, but gosh, my colleagues, uh, again, like Catherine Hayhoe, a very prominent climate scientist from Texas. She's also an evangelical Christian. So she's a wonderful spokesperson for our science to communities that otherwise might not hear us or might not trust scientists right off the bat. But she also gets threats and attacks every day on social media and in real life. And because she's a woman, it's even worse. There's a really striking correlation between climate deniers and misogynist jerks. Uh, And it's actually statistically significant. A lot of the people who are climate deniers are also like some of the most nasty uh, male chauvinists you'll ever meet. So, you know, she has to deal with that kind of double dose of crap. Other scientists like Michael Mann have been attacked by members of Congress, by state legislators, by attorneys general when he was at... University of Virginia, who's being attacked by political operatives, and also has had his life threatened. I mean, this, this just shouldn't happen in, in the world today, but it does. And so I, I think we should tip our hat to some of those climate scientists who really have risked a lot to bring us a lot of bad news we don't want to hear, but we need to hear.
0: What's interesting, when I asked the question, I was thinking about it more from the context of how has your thinking on the problem changed, but you hone right in on an issue that was not the way I intended the question, but I think is a, a very important one in that the scientists themselves really have made great sacrifices and take a lot of abuse along the way to try to do what's right and educate people on the importance and urgency of the problem. And now that I think about it, I think this is the first time that that's come up on the podcast, but also the podcast has had a, a lot of entrepreneurs and NGOs and people from finance, but not as many scientists when it, it's actually, it's the scientists that are on the front lines every day.
1: The science community is on a front line, but then, you know, there are the activists in other countries, especially who literally have risked and lost their lives. Um, people in um, Brazil, for example, have been assassinated for trying to protect rainforest, And that's, in fact, I believe this happened again today. So, you know, there's some pretty horrible things like that happen. I'd say those folks are really on even the worst front lines. Um, But a lot of people are in different ways. And um, so I think that's just something we should recognize is that this is not easy work sometimes to be trying to uncover what's happening to our planet and being um, kind of uh, vilified for doing so. That's not a fun day. But on the positive side is you do, again, get to spend your time thinking about this magnificent planet and you meet amazing people thinking about it and trying to help. So that, to me, more than makes up for it. I think the glass is more than half full from um, the satisfaction of doing this kind of work. But some days it isn't fun. But I guess um, you asked kind of like, you know, what do you think about the problem, not like the work itself, I guess. What's fascinating is a lot of the things that people were saying, let's say in the late 80s, when I started stepping onto this little stage and others have been there long before, the predictions that people were making back in the late 80s about how fast climate change would be happening and so on are almost exactly on track. There's kind of a weird myth out there that climate change is happening faster than the scientists predicted. That's actually not true at all. Go back to the 1992 IPCC report and look forward to what it predicted for 2020. It's right on track, almost exactly, for CO2 concentrations and for temperature change. There are some isolated examples of things that are happening a little faster than we thought, and some that are happening less fast than we thought. But on the whole, the predictions have been pretty accurate. So I think that uh, the science should take a little bow there, and it's done a pretty good job, actually. But it's really scary to think that this is starting to unfold. It's been 30 years since I started looking at those predictions, and now we're living inside them. That's a little bit weird to realize, wow, the world has not taken this seriously. We've spent 30 years hoping the UN would save us, hoping Washington's leaders would save us. And it turns out that was complete crap. They haven't. And uh, I don't think they're going to. Uh, I think it's different kinds of leadership are going to have to emerge to force this kind of thing to happen. I think we need a sea change in the normal way society tries to do things together for this to really unfold. But fortunately, I think it's beginning to happen. But it's not the usual UN delegates and members of Congress and a president all trying to hold hands and sign an arms treaty or something. That's just not the way this is going to get solved. It's going to be very different.
0: So one question that I have is we haven't talked too much about Drawdown 2.0 yet, but in Drawdown 1.0. One thing the book does a really nice job of is illustrating here are the different areas that solutions could have impact and here is the magnitude of impact that they could have if solutions were brought to bear. And that's an important piece and I think that Drawdown 1.0 does that really well. What I've noticed, and unlike you who's been doing this for 30 years I've been doing it for 10 whole months. (laughs) Why do you laugh? No, it's great. (laughs) I'm kidding. But one observation I've had in the brief time that I've been heading down this path is that there are two different frames that I find myself looking at. One is, in an ideal world without constraints, what are the things that would have the highest impact? And then the other lens is, within the world that we live in, with the constraints that we do have... What are the things that are most probable to get done? Because at the end of the day, it's not just what the boldest plan is, but also the best combination of plan and operationalization. That can't be the word. Execution. Yeah, execution. Execution of that plan. It's that combination that ultimately brings about the highest impact. And in that lens, it's like there's an innovation piece. There's a government piece. There's a policy piece there's a consumer sentiment piece, there's a journalism piece, there's a research piece, there's a foreign relations piece, there's a national security piece, on and on and on and on and on and on. And on. And so how do you think about that? And how does Project Drawdown think about that in terms of potential solutions?
1: Well, you raise a really excellent point. I mean, what Drawdown, we should be a little more precise about the language we use. We use the word solution to mean the things that went out and physically and chemically changed the air itself. So, like, you know, the concentration of gases in the air went down because of a physical solution. So, that would be like a solar panel. That would be a forest growing. That would be a mangrove being restored. That would be better agriculture. That would be a new kind of windmill or whatever. Something that, you know, affected the atmosphere in real, in the physical terms. But then we talk about accelerators outside of those solutions that make those solutions actually happen. That would be things like policy. That'd be things like finance. That'd be technology. That'd be culture. would be behavior change, all of those things. So to implement the physical solutions we talk about, solutions we have are like things and practices and technologies. But to deploy them, we need changes in policy, changes in business practice, changes in capital and financial flows. We need changes in culture and behavior. We need changes in Governance, all of those things need to happen all at the same time. And I think what we've done before is made the mistake of thinking big policy with a capital P, you know, big international policy was the one tool we had to solve this problem.
0: Like a global mandate.
1: Yeah, like uh, 180 countries will magically all agree and not fight amongst themselves and write a big piece of paper and everybody will obey it and we'll save the world. That's what we've been doing for 30 years and it didn't work. So now we, you know, has it ever worked um, outside of maybe the Montreal Protocol? And so, I mean, it, it kept the world peace for a long time. I'm grateful for that. But in terms of like a lot of international problem solving, this is a different kind of problem. So I'm really interested in continuing that battle. I want those international diplomats to keep going, that's for sure. But I'm also much more interested right now what cities are doing in the United States right now. Cities and states are leading the way in climate change, not Washington, obviously. But we have California and now New York states, the two biggest economies in the country. Together, about 25% of the U.S. economy, by the way, are just in those two states, have some of the boldest climate plans and laws in the world, not just the U.S., in the world. And California is the fifth largest global economy if we were a separate country. And so after Brexit, you know, probably shoot up a little more. So this is fascinating stuff. So California, New York State, and a whole bunch of cities, all together, about half the U.S. economy at the city level and at the state level are doing better than the Paris Accords, are doing far better than Washington's doing or the U.N. Then we have other countries leading the way too. And a lot of good things are happening, but you wouldn't know it looking at Washington or looking at the U.N. process right now. And so uh, you got to look a little deeper. You got to look at those other places, and then we see businesses stepping up and leading on climate change because you know destroying the planet turns out to be a really big you know business uh, blunder. You know you don't—it's a bad business model to mess up the planet. It turns out, and uh, we also see a lot of culture change in this respect. So I'm actually people are kind of surprised to hear this, but the U.S. our peak emissions happened back in the year 2007, over 10 years ago, and they've been going down basically ever since. We're now 15% below our maximum emissions Happened way under George W. Bush. We had a recession first, but then we got in a lot more energy efficiency. We got better cafe standards. And a lot of good things happened. Even if we didn't have a master climate policy for the U.S., a lot of good things were helping anyway. Trump is trying to undo a lot of those things as fast as possible. Thankfully, the courts are stopping most of those. But a lot of it's baked in. Uh, coal is never coming back in the U.S., that's just economics. That's technology. It has nothing to do with federal policy anymore. It did for a long time, but now the market's taking over. Solar and wind and batteries are simply cheaper than coal already. And maybe same with natu-
0: natural gas. I know it emits, and that I mean long term, we want to get off of it as quickly as possible. But I mean, today isn't natural gas one of the biggest drivers that's leading people to get off of coal?
1: Not anymore. Uh, it was, yeah. So we had coal replaced by natural gas, which some people called a bridge fuel. Others said it's a bridge to nowhere because it's still a carbon-emitting fuel, and there's methane leaks along the way. Methane, which is natural gas, is also a powerful greenhouse gas. So you create CO2, but you also leak this nasty methane in the atmosphere, which is kind of a double whammy. So natural gas may not have been a big climate savior we thought it was, although it did clean up air quality and a lot of other things along the way, too. So, you know, it's a mixed bag. But the real solution is to get off of carbon fuels altogether, and that's where renewables have gotten cheaper faster than anybody ever predicted. So now we're not just talking about getting rid of coal; it's getting rid of coal for sure, and probably getting rid of natural gas by twenty thirty. You know, in much of the U.S. and abroad, the physics of this, the technology—mean, solar and wind—are getting cheaper. Nobody has been able to keep up with those forecasts. They've gotten cheaper faster than anyone I've ever seen dare to make a prediction about the price of solar, solar prices have fallen faster than even the most optimistic optimist. And so in at least the electricity sector, which is only about a quarter of climate change, by the way, all the electricity created in the world is uh, creates about one-fourth of the climate change problem. Food and agriculture and land use is also about a fourth and doesn't get nearly the same attention. But electricity, I think we've hit a tipping point where coal and gas are now the past. Solar, wind, hydro, and storage are the future. And that's happening faster than anybody ever predicted. And markets are moving that needle more than policy now. Needed policy to get started, but now the markets are kind of moving it ahead quite well and policy can help. But now the costs are driving it. Now we need to look at the other sectors of climate change. I mean, climate change requires us to focus in about five major areas. 25% of climate change is electricity globally. 25% 25% is food and agriculture and land use. Not nearly enough attention to that. We'll get back to that in a second. The next biggest area is industry, about 20%, then transportation, and then buildings. All those five sectors again, electricity, food, industry, transport, and buildings that's all together is 90% of the climate change emissions problem. So, five things that's 90%. Electricity gets way more than its share of attention in the media and in discourse and technology and investment in grants, but it's the one we have the closest to solving now. I want to focus a lot more attention on the other sectors like food and agriculture, equally important to electricity, yet not nearly the same investment in technology. Hardly anybody in venture capital or you know, finance are paying attention to it until recently, but we need to work on that. Transportation buildings, huge problems, legacy infrastructure there, you know, trillions of dollars of highways, rails, ports, airplanes, airports, every building on earth will have to change pretty much fundamentally how it's lit, how it's heated, how it's cooled, how you get to it. Uh, We're talking about trillions of dollars of baked in infrastructure that's much bigger than the electricity infrastructure. How are we going to turn all that over? We can electrify a lot of it, but it's going to take decades to flip it all over. And this is also in a world where China, India, and other countries are explosively investing in their infrastructure. This is a big problem. So I think we need to take away our attention a little bit from just electricity and like coal and oil switching and coal, uh, gas and oil to solar and wind. That's the easy problem. Now let's talk about forests, let's talk about our food supply, let's talk about all the buildings we've already built and all the infrastructure for transportation that we can't electrify. Let's talk about concrete, let's talk about steel, let's talk about hydrofluorocarbons, which are the most potent greenhouse gas we emit. Those are other problems we need to address in climate change, and that's why Drawdown looked at all of those sectors, and we came up with a hundred solutions, not just a few, like solar panels and windmills.
0: And does Project Drawdown, or do you have a view when it comes to looking at all of these different areas and on what the most impactful things we can do are to accelerate our progress
1: overall. So Drawdown 1.0, the original book, I kind of just think of it as like a good coffee table book. Imagine a really good food book. It's like here's a, like a coffee table book about cuisine. You can flip through it and you see all the different kinds of food. Oh, that's lovely, that's lovely. But it's not a recipe.
0: It's also, it's how I've heard people talk about how they engage with the book as well. And candidly, that's how I've engaged with the book as well, flipping through it as if it's coffee table reading.
1: Yeah, well, that was the intent, is to inspire people and engage them in a very readable format that was engaging and beautiful. And I think we did our job. But it's kind of like a coffee table book about food. It doesn't tell you how to actually make the recipe. It isn't a plan yet. It's more of a sketch of what that world could look like. And that was our only goal. And I think it succeeded brilliantly. But now we need to kind of figure out like, okay, between now and 2050, how do you actually do it? How do you bake that beautiful casserole you have a photo of here and tell me how delicious it is? How do you actually bloody make it? What are the ingredients? What do I do first? Do I preheat the oven or do I not? Do I baste it in olive oil or butter? Do I do this kind of dish or that kind of dish? What's the actual plan? And that's where we're a little bit stuck as a community right now is that right now I think electricity is going to make big, bold steps in the next five to 10 years. That's where we're going to have the biggest changes. Other fronts that are ripe for change in the 2020s to get us as fast as we can away from climate change disaster, I would focus a lot on methane leaks. It's kind of funny. Um, methane is another greenhouse gas that's in, for the next 20 years about 80 times more powerful than CO2 on a molecule-for-molecule basis. But then it disappears from the atmosphere after about 20 to 30 years. So it just chemically goes away, where CO2 lives for centuries. So it's got a big punch but a short lifetime. But if you want to keep the planet cool, if you want to hit the emergency break on climate change right now hit methane, nitrous oxide and the fluorinated gases the ones that because are, they get out the quickest they are uh, they pack a disproportionate punch and they are they're smaller places in the economy you can go track them out and stop them. Like a lot of the natural gas leaks come from uh, leaky natural gas pipes fracking infrastructure where they didn't really uh, plug all the leaks of uh, natural gas kind of fracking sites, basically where they're drilling for it, hydraulic fracturing. It also comes from uh, agricultural sites, of course, from cattle and landfills and rice fields. That's a big challenge, but we can tighten up a lot of those leaks pretty quickly. And that would have an immediate huge impact for the next decade or two if we could tighten up natural gas leaks and reduce methane from agriculture and landfills. Huge. That would buy us time to then focus on the longer-term solutions we need in things like steel, or turning out, re- retrofitting all the buildings in the world, retrofitting our entire transportation infrastructure. No matter how fast we do that, it's gonna take a really long time. Well, think of cars. Uh, you know, we're so proud to see Teslas on the road today, but for every electric vehicle sold today, there are about 15 SUVs and pickup trucks sold in America. And those cars will all be on the road for about 15 to 20 years.
0: Now, is the goal of Drawdown to take all that information that you just said? Because now you've said, here are the areas that we think can be high impact, given our budget and within the necessary timeframes. Okay, so that's starting to do some prioritization. But what about the next step, which is, and if you want to bring that about, here's the role for innovation. Here's the role for policy. Here's the role for research. Here's the role for R&D. So my question is not, draw down, you should do everything, but kind of which piece are you taking on? And is that information then getting to the people that need to carry the torch to do the rest?
1: That's a really good question. So what, this is just my own personal reaction to that. Uh, I'm not going to speak for anybody else in the organization, um, but we, we talk about it a lot, but this is just my answer. We're still kind of debating this a bit. But the, um, if you look at those five areas, again, electricity, food and ag, industry transport and buildings i look at what's the current state of play what's happening today and where do we want it to be a completely greenhouse gas free economy in those sectors by 2040 2050 time frame it's kind of the best case scenario right we've modeled it out and said it's at least possible but then what foot do we start with you know where do you start And um, you got to think, I think a little bit more like a tech investor, kind of like, okay, let's stage gate the problem. What's the next biggest limiting factor between where you are today and success? That's all Elon Musk thinks. It's like he does one problem at a time, knocks down that domino, then the next domino. That you know, He wants to go to Mars. Okay, what's the first thing you got to do? You got to make rockets cheaper. How do you do that? You make them reusable. How do you do that? You know, blah, blah, blah. And he just goes through these problems step by step by step. So I think about that the kind of same way. So in electricity, what's the biggest limiting factor between today and success? Right now, it's not innovation or R&D. It's deployment. We have it. Go. The more you deploy, the cheaper it gets. The cheaper it gets, the more you deploy. Run. More R&D would help, but I don't think we're limited by basic science and R&D and electricity. Could help. Absolutely. But we've got a lot we haven't even used yet, and the power of deployment and markets is ready to go. In agriculture and land use, we're limited mostly by policy. We have a lot of really bad policies in the U.S., for example, that encourage food waste, bad diets that aren't healthy for climate or for people, and also exploitive agriculture that kind of hurts the soil, decreases its ability to store carbon, and also encourages other places to tear down rainforests, to grow beef and soybeans. We, China, a bunch of other countries are kind of doing these bad things. So we need policy change there as well as some cultural change longer term to begin to shift diets in a more climate-friendly direction, led first by policy, but also along with a wave of culture, as well as uh, reducing food waste. Again, I think policy and culture change are the biggest levers. Technology has a role to play in there too, but I think uh, we need to think about it a little differently. Industry, we need some r and D. don't know how we're gonna make concrete in the future because concrete, if it were a country, would be the third largest emitter of CO2 in the world after China and the United States. We don't yet have a viable, commercially viable form of concrete to use to replace what we currently use today. Who's going to do that? Who's investing in that technology? A few places are. Bill Gates is. A few other people are, but not enough. I want DOE. I want commerce. I'd like to see a crash program in the federal government and throw billions of dollars in climate-safe concrete. That'd be a great investment for R&D. Let's get our national labs on that stuff. Uh, How do we make steel? How do we make long-haul aviation fuel that's climate-friendly, where nobody's going to give up flying except for a few environmentalists? Most people still want to fly. How are we going to make that climate-friendly? Electric airplanes? That's not going to go across the Atlantic yet. So how are we going to do that? So there's a place there for R and D. So I think each of those sectors is at a different moment. Some need markets and deployment. Some need policy. Some need basic R and D because we don't even have the technology cheap enough to make it viable yet.
0: So drawdown 1.0 sold hundreds of thousands of copies. Yeah. Other than the book sales number, is there any feedback loop to know? Out of those hundreds of thousands of copies, what kind of impact was there with your work? It's interesting because
1: um, in China, 1.0, they chose to write a book, literal paper book, you know, that's uh, sold by Amazon and other places. There's a digital version as well. And it's sold magnificently well. It's the best cl- selling climate book in a long, long time, and it's still selling. And I'm not
0: digging it, by the way. And I'm also not suggesting that there's not impact beyond the book sales. What I'm trying to get at, though, is assuming that there is impact, which I'm sure there is, how do you know?
1: The good thing about a book is that it's very tangible, it's physical, it's real. You can hand it to people, people are inspired by it. They flip through it. It's a great, great, great resource. I love that. The problem with the book is that it's expensive to distribute the per cap. you know, I mean, you buy the book, it costs about 18 bucks, costs us another 50 bucks to write it. That's a very expensive per-person impact model, so that's going to be really hard to scale up to a billion people, let's say. I don't have that kind of money laying around <laughs> you know, to fund. Also, you don't have the immediate digital feedback loop of knowing who clicked on the book, where did it go, did they share it on Twitter or Facebook. All those digital analytics aren't there anymore, so we have mainly anecdotal information.
0: Even if it was in 7 billion hands, is there any way to know what is the outcome of having it in those 7 billion hands? Like, what outcome do you hope for? You see what I'm getting at? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So there's two levels of impact. One is the sales of the book and how many people maybe read it, shared it, and talked about it.
0: And I'm sure it has second and third order effects that you can't track. Well,
1: I, we're tracking some of them because then we can see media mentions. Uh, we've had two different TED Talks uh, done by my colleagues, Catherine Wilkinson and Chad Freshman, who've had, I think, four million views there and a whole bunch of interviews and media. And so I think the total eyeball shed of drawdowns in the tens of millions easily, probably much more than that, maybe in the hundreds of millions, have heard about it or seen something related to it. But then, yes, so what? Now, did it change anybody's practice? I want
0: more eyeballs on it because if we get more eyeballs on it,
1: then A, B, and C. So I have a lot of examples I've been collecting for the last few months of uh, people who've told me, here's what we did with this. For example, a major company, Intuit. Uh, makes software like a TurboTax and QuickBooks. You know, they make accounting software that a lot of us use when we fire our taxes. They're now a big international company. They sell software like that all over the world, in fact. Huge company. And they admit, committed to being climate neutral by about 2020. And they had you know, gotten more efficient, cut their own primary emissions down like crazy with efficient cloud services and cutting back and everything, more efficient buildings, you name it, done everything you could possibly do. Then buying renewable energy to you know, get the greenest possible electrons into their facilities and so on. Everything's great, but they still had to offset and remove a little bit of emissions by doing a carbon offset somewhere. So they were going to do something like plant trees and put up solar panels, the usual thing. And then they read Drawdown. I said, wait a minute, the number one recommendation from Drawdown is working with refrigerant chemicals, these hydrofluorocarbons that are like super pollutants that cause way more climate change per pound than any other gas. Who's working on that? Crickets. Nobody was. No big corporation was working on managing refrigerants as their climate offset strategy. Intuit read our book, shared it with their senior leadership up in the C-suite, that book passed around. And they got permission to, okay, let's go out and figure out how we can remove refrigerants from getting into the atmosphere.
0: That's a good example.
1: That's a really good example. They hired a team to go to West Africa, to Ghana, where a whole bunch of um, air conditioners and refrigerators from all over the world are being dumped illegally. In the U.S. and in Europe, legally, when you throw away a refrigerator, air conditioner, or a freezer, you have to recover the chemicals in those coils, the uh, hydrofluorocarbons. So it used to be chlorofluorocarbons. Now they're hydrofluorocarbons. They're ozone-friendly, but they're not climate-friendly. They still trap heat in the atmosphere. In this country, you're required to recover those or destroy them so they don't get into the atmosphere, but not in West Africa. They're just left to rust in a landfill someplace. So they hired a third-party company to independently verify and audit this and sent a bunch of engineers out there to work with the local communities to recover those devices and chemically destroy, right on the ground, all those refrigerants so none of them got into the atmosphere. That was a really good day. And our little book tipped that whole organization into doing that, and they're going to make a pretty bold announcement in about two weeks about their next plans, also inspired by Drawdown. There's other companies like um, Interface that makes carpeting and flooring. We've worked with them for years. They've now done something called the carbon take-back program about, hey, we want to not just cut down our emissions. We want to go back and remove our historic emissions we've ever put in the atmosphere. How do we do that? How do we kind of take back CO2 we still emit? Uh, We've had a lot of influence on local communities and from governments and thought leaders. Bill Gates and others funded something called the Breakthrough Energy Ventures. It's about a $2 billion venture fund here in Silicon Valley area. Uh, I was told by one of their founders that, yeah, the first two things people get when they come in the door is their badge and a copy of Drawdown. That's a good day, too. We've heard from hundreds of philanthropists controlling probably billions of dollars saying, hey, uh, we've read your book. It's been great advice. Now can you give us more advice about where we should invest our grants, our philanthropy, maybe even our personal financial investments on climate solutions? Can you give us tools to do a better job? So in Drawdown 2.0, we're going to hear that call and dive in. We're going to not only move beyond books and create the best digital resource for climate solutions the world has ever seen, Drawdown.org come by the end of the year. is going to have amazing new research and resources and directories. We're going to have online classes, ways to find projects, an amazing living, breathing resource to be updated on a weekly basis. Way more interesting than a book can be because it's going to be a living entity and much more multidimensional. But also in Drawdown 2.0, we're going to be working with partners in communities and cities around the world, with businesses around the world, and investors and philanthropists to help them implement these solutions out there in reality. Not just talk about them, but go out and do them. And that's going to be a huge impact, building on the effect the book already had in the first place, which is pretty exciting.
0: I love that direction, because as I was hearing about all these different solutions, it's like, great, identify, educate, great let's go do it. But then it's like, if those bridges aren't actually getting built to operationalize these solutions, then what's the point? But I'm really glad to hear that. I mean, one, it's great to hear that just anecdotally, even without you building those bridges systematically, that the knowledge is so valuable that it's doing its job and getting it out there. But now you're taking the next step, it sounds like. And actually starting to formalize that so that it makes that dissemination and matching process a lot more efficient.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, well, Gandhi once said something kind of brilliant. He said, you know, anything that exists is possible. And we show that the solutions do, in fact, exist. They physically were enough to make the problem of climate change solvable. So kind of the uh, existence theorem, you know, like, can we solve climate change? We very definitively showed, yes, we theoretically can. We have the tools necessary to do it today. That was already enough to inspire people to kind of make their own leaps across the bridge and start implementing them. So I'm pretty proud of the impact even our book had of kind of describing the solutions. People then themselves went out and found ways to go implement them. In on 2.0, we want to help them even further and faster and at scale to go implement at a much quicker pace than was before. But also, um, we shouldn't forget the larger psychological impact that book had. It had a big change in people who read it Who I don't know how many people have told me, for example, said, wow, before I read Drawdown, I just felt hopeless about climate change. All I saw was the bad news and how the politicians were screwing it up. They weren't doing enough. I thought it was hopeless and nothing could be done. But I read Drawdown and it reminded me, hey, we're not necessarily doomed. We don't have to be. That's just a choice we're making to not get off the mat and get up and solve the problem. And Drawdown shows us we can. So there's been a really large intangible benefit, I think, of the first book of uh, kind of showing the world the possibility of a better world. And that inspires people. Showing people a vision of a better world and asking them to join you in building it is the way the world always changes. Martin Luther King didn't go around the world saying, I have a nightmare right? (laughs) And telling how how bad the world's going to be and blaming other people for it. That's what our politicians do, by the way. They have us arguing about the forms of our nightmare rather than collaborating over the visions of our dream. And that's what we need. We need a different kind of leadership that inspires us to say, hey, that's a world I want. I'm going to go fight for that and make it happen and draw down at least, gave people a sketch of that world saying, it's at least possible. Here's a world that could work. Let's go out and do that. Now, in Drawdown 2.0, we want to double down and make more tools, more resources, more connections so that that world becomes a reality.
0: So here's a fun question. If you could wave your magic wand and change one thing that is outside of the scope of the Drawdown roadmap that would best accelerate the path to operationalize the solutions that you've identified, what would it be? It could be anything. It could be a policy thing. It could be an innovation thing. It could be a philanthropic thing. It could be a consumer sentiment thing. It could be something else that I'm not even thinking about.
1: Wow, that's a great question. Um, I'm going to cheat and give you a couple different, maybe halfway answers to that. One answer that a lot of people would probably put out there is saying, hey, look, we've got to change the economic playing field and put a price on carbon that reflects its social cost. That when we burn carbon, it's changing the atmosphere, it's uh, doing a lot of other things like oil spills and causing other pollution and all sorts of economic problems, blah, blah, blah. Maybe we should pay for that somewhere in the equation so that we pay the real cost of fuel, not just its fake cost. That would help a lot because it would tilt the scales towards more carbon friendly and low carbon or zero carbon uh, markets and technologies right away. Markets work, but right now we have a big thumb on the scale in favor of fossil fuels. They're subsidized beyond belief directly and indirectly. They have enormous political power, and they're not priced at all at what their real cost is. So that would be the single biggest lever you could probably imagine is getting rid of the political power fossil fuels have and putting the real price they uh, really have on society on the cost. Of course, that'd be hugely disruptive to everyday people at first. If we did that all automatically, it'd have to be a fee and dividend. Maybe that money goes back to regular taxpayers who know there are a lot of different ways you can implement that. But kind of pricing carbon accordingly would be a good place. But to even begin to have that conversation, you have to get money out of politics. You're going to have restoration of democracy in this country. You can't even begin to have a conversation in DC right now, and you probably can't. So I think that's a really, really tough thing.
0: So what change would you bring about to restore our democracy?
1: Well, get rid of Citizens United. I mean, if, you know, money does not equal speech. Speech equals speech. Money equals money. They're different things. I'm no constitutional scholar. Shouldn't ask me opinions about you know, how to do that. But it's clear that that's distorted the politics, regulation, and subsidization of certain markets uh, over others. So fossil fuels get a huge subsidy in forms of government subsidies. And, you know, the military expenditures we use to safeguard oil supplies and so on. And the social cost is ignored. We just get sick and we destroy our climate for our future and nobody pays the price. That's ridiculous. No other industry can get away with that. Do you have a third? I think we have to look for different voices to inspire us. I think the kind of leadership we've had. I've started listening to a lot of um, new voices in the climate community lately, many of whom are young folks, uh, youth movement, like uh, Greta from Sweden. We've all been watching with admiration but also more women and people of color who have been stepping forward. Um, climate change has been overwhelmingly a white male kind of field. It sounds kind of politically correct and all the say is, but there's really a lot of merit to the argument that we've got to look at this problem a little differently. I think we need to kind of look at the systems we use in the world today, which are largely pretty exploitive. We drill stuff out of the ground, make profit for the short term and leave behind a giant mouse. A lot of people point out that's kind of a that's the kind of path a lot of, you know, rich white dudes often employ. <laughs> it's interesting. There's a funny story that I've heard secondhand now, but that uh, Mary Robinson, the former prime minister of Ireland was once giving a speech about climate change. And somebody stood up and said, well, I don't believe in man-made climate change. And the story goes, I don't know if it's true, but the story goes, well, she took great offense to that. saying, man-made, that's, you know, I'm a feminist. How and then she stopped. So wait a minute actually, this is a man-made problem. I mean, look at the oil companies. Look at big ag. Look at the people who caused this mess. It's largely men and largely white men who did a lot of this kind of crap. Maybe the solutions will come from different places. And that's often what happens. Some of our biggest challenges often have solutions from people who've been kept out of power, who had different kinds of ideas. And um, I'm starting to hear that a lot more and more and kind of embracing that. So I think a sea change in the economics in the regulations and how we do our politics, but also in the culture and in the, in the kind of the story we tell ourselves and who gets to tell that story of what future do we want. I think the culture needs to change too. That sounds a little more squishy, but I think it's nonetheless incredibly important and we probably need all three. So what inspires me right now mostly is the new voices coming to climb, not just old white dude hippies or something or old white science guys like me or something. I think we've had our day. We're going to still be important, still things to say. We're not giving up, but I'm really impressed by the new voices coming to the climate movement, the youth. It's hard to take them for granted. I mean, looking at these kids who are, you know, just saying, hey, this is about our future and they're, they're risking their reputation, their time, and their, you know, their lives maybe in some cases to really change the conversation is huge. And also a lot more uh, women, more people of color, more entrepreneurs, more innovators, more writers, we're going to need a lot of different thinkers to solve this one. You know, what got us into this mess is one kind of thinking. What will get us out has got to be something else.
0: So two more questions, and then I'll let you get to your next commitment. But <laughs> okay, One is just, it's a similar question except with dollars. So if you had $100 billion and you could allocate it towards anything to maximize its impact in the climate fight, where would you put it, and how would you allocate it?
1: Right now, uh, one hundred billion, I'd buy the Amazon. <laughs> Basically, I mean seriously, the um, deforestation right now emits about ten to fifteen percent of global uh, greenhouse gas emissions, depending on which numbers you look at. That's equivalent of like all the world's transportation, and it's done mainly in a couple of places in the world. Historically, half of the uh, deforestation on the planet happens in Brazil and in Indonesia for about four major commodities: beef soybeans, palm oil, and timber. So a few countries, a few big commodities, and you could eliminate one of the big contributors to climate change and one of the biggest drivers of biodiversity loss in the world. Also one of the biggest insults to indigenous peoples and human rights in the equatorial regions, all in one fell swoop. Now, could you literally buy the Amazon or buy Indonesia? No. But could you maybe um, set up incredible multi-generational trust? Could you do things that are setting up like a global trust for the future in forests? Could you enforce it? Could you have legal instruments? Could you do things that actually protect the Amazon, the Indonesian archipelago, and the future West Africa, the Congo, for you know hundred billion dollars? I think you could make a big dent in that problem. So that's where I'd focus it more than anything else. Other people would probably look at different kinds of technologies, uh, like nuclear or uh, fusion or batteries or something like that. That's cool too, but I look at the forest because if we lose those, we lose a huge place where emissions are happening, but also a place where carbon's being removed from the atmosphere. But not not only that, this treasure of biodiversity this planet's had and it took millions of years to evolve could literally disappear, and uh, we should act to preserve it. That's where I put it: the money first.
0: My last question is is just that there's many different kinds of people that might be listening to this podcast, but they all share or certainly many, if not all of them share uh, something in common, which is that they care about the planet and about this problem. They're concerned about it and they want to find a way to help. So talk to all of them for a moment. What advice do you have for people that are trying to find their lane to help get a better handle on this problem? You can either have one message for all of them, or you can segment and have different messages for different profiles in that audience, but it'd be great if you could just speak to them for a moment, speak to listeners.
1: One of my heroes is a woman named Catherine Hayhoe. who's a climate scientist in Texas. Uh, she's really a magnificent scientist and communicator. She um, often says the best thing we can do about climate change is learn about it and talk about it. Because talking about it helps us kind of accept the scary part of it. You talk through the fear and the anxiety of like, geez, this is a big friggin' problem. And when you talk through it a little bit, it's kind of like managing you know, your anxiety and grief about it. And then you're sharing information. You know, everybody is now uh, a little media empire with their podcasts, their Facebook page, their Twitter followers, Instagram followers, whatever, sharing helps. So people want to hear from people they trust, people that are their friends and people they know. So I think that would help a lot. But also, um, we're going to need everybody in all different walks of life to solve this problem. It's not going to be just the policymakers and certainly not just the scientists or just the engineers. The solutions to climate change The things that tip us into the better future could come from wildly unexpected places. Who thought a girl with Asperger's from Sweden named Greta would change the way the world's talking about climate change and sail from Sweden to New York, you know, to do it. That's a remarkable thing. Who would have predicted that a year ago? But it's probably the most influential person on climate change in the world right now. That's amazing. So don't think the power of any one individual is minuscule. It's not that is what changes the world and we need everyone in their niche what are you people sometimes ask so what can i do about climate change and i look at them and so i don't know what can you do tell me what you can do and then i'll tell answer the question and usually the answer is keep doing that but now apply that to climate change you're a great engineer great we need you there are you a great entrepreneur great we need you there are you a great writer cool we need help with that too are you an activist? Great. Do that. Are you a storyteller? Are you a teacher? Are you a public health official or a nurse, a doctor? You know, Yes, yes, yes. We need you all. So uh, don't think that you can't help with climate change. Inevitably, we will need you. This is going to be one of the big heroic moments for human history, I think. I think we're going to get it right. I really am actually somewhat stubbornly optimistic about the future still. Hard to be that some days. But I think that when we really have our backs up against the wall, we can be great and do magnificent things. And I'd really like to see us do it and really like to see us try at least. And that's going to need all of us and from unexpected places. So whoever's listening, please join in and we need you. I want to look back some decades from now and be really proud of the tipping point that we're about to enter where we're like, oh wow, we were on the brink of disaster, but we just pulled it out in time and made a really good choice and the world's getting better. That'd be cool. I want to tell that story. Can you help us? That'd be great.
0: Well, I think that's a terrific point to end on. So, Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Yeah. Hey, thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. And thanks for all your help in sharing this message to the world and your journey as well. It's been really fun to follow it from afar. Thanks.
0: Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on My Climate Journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co.